Hi, I'm Rick Steves. While I specialize in travel to Europe, our weekly radio hour is a springboard for adventures to the far corners of our planet. On today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we're heading to the tropics, Central and South America. First, we'll stop in a country that's often overlooked, Honduras. Its low prices make it a cheap place for North Americans to vacation or retire. And while its rough edges keep casual tourists away, they reward hardy travelers with a vivid, real-world experience. From Tegucigalpa to the Bay Islands and the Mosquito Coast, guidebook author Chris Humphrey introduces us to Honduras. Then, we'll check in with an American who's recently moved to Rio de Janeiro to see just how he's adjusting to life in Brazil. What do you have to give up, and what new discoveries do you make when you fall in love with someone who lives so far away? It's Brazilian Culture Shock 101 and a visit to Honduras. Plus, we'll take your calls. It's all coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Whether you prefer hiking in a jungle, cliff diving off rocky coastlines, working on that perfect tan, or volunteering your time to help out a developing nation, Latin America offers many attractions for us Norte Americanos. I'm Rick Steves. Join me as we learn about Honduras and find out what life's like for an American who now calls Brazil home. First, your calls. 877-333-RICK. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to talk to Stephen in San Diego. Stephen, thanks for giving us a call. You're very welcome. Yeah, what are you thinking about, Stephen? Well, I'm curious about the proper method of being seated in European restaurants. When I was in Italy last year, it was like festival seating. You walked in, sat down, and someone eventually came over and gave you a menu. In other countries, it seems to be more like it is here. You wait for someone to take you to a table. Do you have any general suggestions or guidelines? Well, this is a good topic. I haven't really thought about this much before, because to me it's you kind of roll with the punches and you sort of pay attention and see what's, how it's going on around you. I've made mistakes like I think you've learned from your experience in, in Italy and so on. In some cases, I know, for instance, when you go into a pub in Britain or Ireland, a lot of tourists will sit there and sit there forever wondering, why aren't I getting any service? But they just don't know the um, protocol in, in a pub is you go to the bar and you make your order and then you sit down and they bring it to you. A big uh, mistake a lot of tourists make unknowingly in the German-speaking world is they sit at what looks like a great table and it's empty and they didn't know that was the Stammtisch. And the Stammtisch, it says Stammtisch on it. And that is the table that's reserved for the regulars. And that is a major faux pas for tourists to sit at something like that. In Italy, my experience is um, some restaurants are more casual and um, you would just grab a seat and other restaurants you would wait to be seated like at an American restaurant. But personally, I would probably just wait at the door and get the um, eye contact of a waiter because uh, you don't want to sit where they're not going to serve you. And it's probably, don't you think it would be just good style to let them put you where, where they want to put you? Well, typically, I, I do just what you suggested. I stand around until either someone weighs me to a table or comes and gets me and seems to work out fine. Now, one problem here, Stephen, is they often will put tourists in a back area because it sort of cheapens the ambience of a restaurant in some waiter's um, feelings. Do you ever Have you ever had that experience? Um, not because I'm a tourist. <laughs> oh. Okay, well... I don't know why they would do that, but, I mean, this is something that tourists have a problem with. They, they're attracted to a restaurant because it looks just so charming. They get there, and they don't realize that there's a basement or an upstairs where they will put the, the people who are, uh, don't look like, um, you know, high-end local people. So that's a concern at a, at a classy little restaurant in Rome or something like that that I've had. Um, where are you thinking of traveling? Um, next year, probably back to Italy. Back to Italy, yeah. It's, um, you know, one, one thing that's very important when you're choosing restaurants, uh, Stephen, is to remember, I learned this in my own uh, research when I'm updating the restaurant listings in my guidebooks, you go between 7 and 8.30 and the place will be either relatively quiet or filled with tourists. And then you go in at 8.30 or 9 o'clock and all of a sudden the whole character of the place changes and it's filled with locals. And I have found, just from my own experience, that I've misjudged places as touristy places. But I was going there when the Americans eat, which is around 7. No Europeans can eat at 7. They like to come in at 8.30 or 9. Come back at 9.30, there's not a tourist in sight. They're all, you know, gone, and the locals are coming out for their meal. I'll have to 
keep that in mind. Yeah, and, and then, of course, new uh, smoke-free restaurants, so you won't have smoke to deal with anymore in the restaurants in Italy. <laughs> that's, that'll be interesting. That's big time, and there's uh, serious fines. I mean, some restaurants thought, ah, this is, uh, this is bogus. We're going to uh, let people smoke in our restaurants, and they were fined. Both the restaurant and the customers were fined, so, so that's good news. Um, I think that's uh, – and the other thing I would remind you when you're in Italy, Stephen, is it's very, very popular. And if you've got a, a restaurant that's in a guidebook or whatever, do yourself a big favor. If you're really determined to eat at that place, make a reservation. It's so easy, and you can make a reservation in English. It's uh, essentially free from your hotel room, and then you know. And the, and the restaurant prefers that also, whether they're locals or tourists. Oh, good advice. Okay. Thanks for your call, Stephen. Well, thank you very much. Okay, bye. Chuck in Florida. Chuck, are you there? Yes, I am, Rick. I'm from Wikiwachi, Florida. Wikiwachi? Is that a town? Uh, well, Wikiwachi is where the city of mermaids is. It's about 50 miles north of Tampa. Someday I'm going to have to travel around our own beautiful country. <laughs> well, it's just mermaids. In fact, I'm a school teacher, and some of the mermaids are just sitting in my classroom. Oh, that's great. Yes. So what can we do for you? Well, we're traveling to Rome. And my, my first question is, is it cheaper to buy a, a railroad ticket that goes to Florence and then from Florence to Venice? Because we're flying open-jawed. We're flying into Rome and flying out of Venice. It's very cheap to buy the train ticket from Rome to Ve- Florence and then to Venice. I wouldn't worry about it until you get to Rome. And, um, you know, it's 20 or 25 bucks, something like that. And uh, if you want to go first class, you pay 50% more. And the trains are leaving every hour. And it's quite relaxing. I I enjoy just connecting those towns by train because it lets me sort of decompress and do a little reading or writing and munch a picnic or whatever. And then before I know it, I'm pulling into the next town. Could I just uh, book it direct to Venice and maybe go through Florence? You wouldn't. uh, Yeah, you can book it direct to Venice. It's basically when you buy your ticket, you would, uh, if you want the the sort of security or the peace of mind of having a seat reserved, it'll cost you a few bucks. But I I do it just because it's... uh, it cost almost nothing, and then you you know you're not going to have a rude surprise when you get there of a of a, all the seats being full. Um, and some trains, some faster trains, require reservations even if they're not full. You you need a reservation to get on the train. And I would do it when I get to Rome. I would just drop by the train station or a travel agency, and I would tell them I want to go to Florence on this day, and then Venice on that day, and take care of it there. Okay. And I've heard from a couple of friends that because of the bomb scares that. When we go to Florence, we'd like to, to drop our baggage off in Florence just for the day and then pick them up at a, a bag pickup. Is the bag pickup still in Florence? The bag pickup should be okay in Florence. Uh, you'll have to pay a premium because now they've got different uh, security concerns, and a lot of times they'll even have one of these uh, metal detectors. Uh, a lot of times they won't have um, regular um, you know, um, lockers, because they can't uh, check what's going into the lockers, and for security reasons, they shut down the lockers. But you almost always can go to a check desk, and then you will pay them a few bucks, and they'll take your bag, and you get a little coupon that is your receipt, and you come back later, pick up your bag, you're on your way. So that should be no problem at all. Okay, that sounds great. Have a good time on your trip. All right, and I just want to say thank you for doing a Christmas trip. Oh, all right. Have Have you been to Europe during Christmas? Yes, sir. In fact, on your uh, graffiti wall, many times people have emailed me about, we want to hear more about Nuremberg, we want to hear more about Vienna. How did you like Nuremberg during Christmas in Vienna? Rick, it's fantastic. Yeah, wow. I, I just, I, I love the, the open-air market in Nuremberg with all those stalls and, and the smell. I wish we could have smell-o-vision. Oh. So we could smell the, smell the wine, the sausages. Oh. The, you, are, do you know where I'm coming from? Yeah, someday we'll have uh, 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 olfactory lenses on our cameras, but then I'll have to bathe. That's <laughs> but it'll that's be great. True. We'll get all those wonderful, uh, uh, the, the, the beautiful aromas of Christmas in Nuremberg. You know, that Christmas market in Nuremberg must be one of the classiest markets in Europe, and they're very careful to keep it classy. Did you know that? There's, there's no real noisy neon or, or kitschy stuff there. It's handmade, local products. Mostly, I've gone there... I believe it'll be our third time this Christmas, and you're right. It's all handmade, and and many of the people are are regulars. They're, it's the same stall throughout their is it their lives. Generations, yeah. generations doing the the same little handicrafts. And did you notice in the wine stalls there, um, Chuck? We've got a situation where there's no disposable glasses. You've That's got right. to you give a deposit and you get a ceramic mug. 
and then you bring the glass back, and you can get your money back, or you get a, or you get a knock-shank and glue vine bitta. Yeah, or you get a little uh, a souvenir there, and you, you lose your deposit. But um, that's so typically European. It's a wonderful way that they're able to um, maintain their uh, heritage, uh, celebrate it in a classy way, and uh, we sure enjoyed that in our travels. Nuremberg is a great place for that. They've got all the carolers going from uh, courtyard to courtyard, and of course you got the uh, the great uh, Christmas market. And uh, as you'll see, folks that watch our Christmas special, uh, on PBS, uh, uh, you've got this Christkind. And right. to me, this is so fascinating. Uh, of course, there's the uh, the Protestant and the Catholic approach to Christmas over the centuries. And Martin Luther, you know, he didn't want uh, the focus on St. Nicholas uh, right. for the gift giving for the children. So he said, let's have the Christ child give the gifts. So the Christkind would give the gifts. But the little kids had a hard time conceptualizing the baby Jesus giving gifts. So it sort of morphed into um, an angel, and the angel's a young girl. So you have this uh, teenage angelic queen of Christmas called the Christ child or Christkind that is uh, sort of rock star status in in Nuremberg. She's uh, crowned uh, the Christkind, and she reigns for two years, and she goes waving her wand and to all the children's gatherings, and and it's uh, the kids are just enamored by her. We saw her at one little gathering, and she said, if you're very, very gentle, you can touch my wings. And all the kids just gently mobbed her, and it was just the most beautiful look at Christmas, and it was a, uh, a look at Christmas that, in all my years, I had never even imagined. So that's a great thing about traveling during the holidays. And one other thing, in Vienna, at New Year's Eve time, they have a stage set, set up with uh, rock groups and country and that type of thing. And uh, Vienna's fantastic at New Year's Eve. So you were there in, uh, and I would think Vienna would be bitterly cold on New Year's Eve, but everybody was out for outdoor musical performances? That's correct. How did that work? Um, they have they have stages set up in different, different places in, in the old city in Vienna. Huh. And uh, these are live bands, and of course they have the stalls where you can you can buy sausages and and, wow. and glue vine and that type of thing. A lot of people. And, oh, it's mostly Italians. In fact, in fact, the Viennese they say they go back home and watch on TV the the orchestra at the uh, opera for the New Year's Eve ball. Wow, and, New Year's uh, in Vienna. There's a concept. Yes. Wow. Now, you know, uh, you mentioned our graffiti wall at ricksteves.com. There is this wonderful community of travelers that are sharing information. I just ask the questions and get out of the way, and then these thriving boards uh, just uh, combust. And people like you are, are reading and contributing and sharing information, and, and, and uh, there's a lot of good information there for this kind of travel. That There sure is, and I really thank you for it. Chuck, thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Very good. Okay, bye now. Bye. Next, we're heading to Central America. After years of traveling the world, guidebook author Chris Humphrey finally found his Shangri-La, Honduras. It's a laid-back land with refreshingly few resort hotels or large-scale developments to interfere with the good nature of its people and the lush wonder of its immense jungle canopy. And Honduras is one Central American nation that's off the radar for most travelers. Being overlooked by tourists is one reason why those who do venture to Honduras like it so much. And later this hour, we'll venture farther south and talk with an American who's relocated to Rio de Janeiro. What's it like to be an expat in Brazil? In these days of Internet and satellite TV, how much of American sports, culture, and politics do you have to give up to live so far from home? And is there any fallout for Americans there since the U.S. and Brazilian governments aren't seeing eye to eye on very much lately? Steve Spencer gives us the lowdown on moving to Brazil later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're traveling to Honduras, and I've got with me a man who is an expert in Honduras who has written the Moon Handbook to Honduras. After lots of traveling throughout Central America, he also writes the Moon Guidebook to Mexico City. And today, uh, we're talking with Chris Humphrey about Honduras. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. Now, Chris, the big question I have right off the top is uh, you have become an expert on Honduras. And when you go to Central America, you got Costa Rica, you got Panama, you got Guatemala, you got Belize, you got so much um, other places that you might be passionate about. How did you end up uh, with a focus on Honduras? Well, uh, it's uh, a good uh, good way to put it because it is sort of an overlooked little country in uh, in Central America. And that's kind of why I sort of fell for it, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, because in my mind, I, I would say, you know, if you want the um, if you want the paradise, you go to Costa Rica. That's the Switzerland of Central America. If you want mm-hmm. the snorkeling, you go to Belize. If you want the politics, you go to Nicaragua and, and El Salvador. <laughs> Honduras is just, uh, isn't it, I just thought of it as a big U.S. military base for operations in other countries. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> in fact, was the old nickname, the USS Honduras right. uh, back in the 80s. But, uh, but no, it's actually got a lot of uh, the attractions that those other countries have. Good. Uh, Sell us on Honduras. It's, uh, it's got a lot of the, uh, the sort of the main tropical attractions that you look for in a Central American country. It's got endless beaches uh, on the Caribbean coast. It's got tons of jungle. It's got the biggest jungle left in Central America, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's got lots of cloud forest, which is sort of Costa Rica's claim to fame. But uh, in fact, Honduras has a whole lot more of it. Uh, it's got Mayan ruins. It's got colonial villages. It's got all of that stuff. The problem has been that it's uh, because it's been uh, it's you know it's a fairly poor country and it has not managed to develop its tourism infrastructure until uh, until recently. It's just sort of started getting going. But uh, the upside of that is that uh, the people there are really a very laid back bunch. They're not eyeing you up and down with the dollar signs in their eyes like you might get the the feel elsewhere. That's what I gathered from reading the introduction to your book. I'm talking with Chris Humphrey, who writes The Moon Handbook to Honduras. And Chris, before we get into all of these, this sounds intriguing, actually. I'm starting to warm up already to Honduras. Uh, tell me just, let's get into rudiments. Uh, sure. Getting there, visas, health, expense, language barrier, uh, just a general quick primer. Sure. Uh, getting there, flights are, are really dropping from the U.S. They used to be quite a bit more expensive, but uh, Taka and Continental... Uh, have pretty regular flights now from from Houston. Uh, you can get there for probably around five hundred bucks usually if you uh, round trip it, from yeah round okay. trip if you set it up pretty well in advance. Mm-hmm. Miami and, and Houston are the main departure points. And then you get there. What's your daily uh, budget for you know somebody who's not uh, slumming around but who wants to get a comfortable hotel and eat well? You can uh, certainly get by for thirty five forty dollars a day uh, if you're sort of on the lower end of uh, comfort zone. I would mm-hmm. say uh, the Lempita is. Uh, is a fairly <clears throat> inflation-prone currency, so prices tend to be in our favor down there. So if people are reeling from the dollar dropping against the euro, maybe they should set out Europe for a little while, I hate to say that, and give, <laughs> give you royalties instead of me by buying a guidebook to Honduras. That sounds perfect to me, yeah. All right. So for 50 bucks a day, you can live well in Honduras. Yes, you can live very well. In fact, there's a growing expatriate community, especially on the north coast down there. I bet. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the, the highlights you were talking about. Jungles, sure. cloud forests, Mayan ruins, colonial towns, and the people. First of all, the densest jungles you mentioned? Or, or what the largest, of- the most extensive jungles in Central America, the Mosquitia, the famous Mosquito Coast, Oh yeah, which is uh, basically northeastern Honduras. Uh, it's basically, if you look at a map, it's the whole northeastern quarter. Is There's no roads out there. Wow. Uh, it's really a beautiful area. There's no way to get there other than plane and boat or, or walking. So there's little um, communities with airplane service, and that's it? Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, the Mosquito Indians. Uh, they live, it's it's a ethnic group. Uh, it's sort of a mix between black slaves and, American, and uh, native Indians that lived on the coast. Wow. They offer tourism uh, guides up the, up the rivers. The Rio Platano, yeah. the best-known river down there. It's a biosphere reserve. Okay, now, Chris, Costa Rica cashes in on its cloud force, but uh, you say there are as good a cloud force in Honduras. In Honduras, uh, yes. What is a cloud force? What's the big deal with this? Well, cloud force is kind of a high-altitude jungle. It's, uh, it's actually totally different biologically than a lowland jungle, but it looks to observers like you and I, about the same. It's very very lush and dense and vines everywhere. Uh, the Quetzal, the famous Quetzal bird, resides in the, in the cloud forest. Uh, and in fact, Honduras, yes, has, has lots more. Uh, it just hasn't developed the great park system that, that Costa Rica has. But 
I kind of like that. So you <laughs> got, I go out there yeah. with a machete and get some local guy who's a guide. So if you're saying if, off you, we wander. if you want the undeveloped Costa Rica, you could make a case you could find that in Honduras. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and the downside is you wouldn't have the convenience and uh, the mm-hmm. comfort that you could get it in a more affluent country. That's exactly it. And the upside is you're more of an adventurer. You are an adventure. There's no question about it. You can uh, blaze fresh trail in Honduras all over the country. Ah, all right. Now, take me back here. Before there were these countries, you had these Mayan civilizations, these pre-Columbian civilizations. Yeah. Were, if you go back before these modern countries, what was the political landscape? Well, it was sort of a, actually sort of a cultural collision point, uh, interestingly enough. It was where a lot of the cultures from South America and the Caribbean met with the Mesoamerican Mayan cultures. Uh, and in fact, the north part of Honduras on the border of Guatemala was kind of the southern end of the Mayan zone. And the big ruin in, in Honduras is Copan, hmm. Copan uh, yeah. which is not, say, architecturally is blow you away as Tikal, but is in fact uh, was an interesting sort of Florence of the Mayan world for whatever reason, uh, just covered with artwork, artwork all over the place, scriptures everywhere. Wow. Uh, and in fact, it was the place where the archaeologists you say it's not as famous uh, in terms of the Mayan world, but in archaeologists it is because that's where they, they first started breaking the Mayan code and deciphering what the Mayans were actually saying because there was so much artwork at Copan. That was... And when you go there, there's actually services and guidebooks and museums and so on. Absolutely, yeah. Copan is a, is a very, very beautiful sculpture museum, actually. Yeah. And uh, the little town nearby, Copan Ruinas, it's called, has uh, got plenty of hotels. And okay. fact, they just put in an airstrip so you can fly there now. And then 500 years ago, the Europeans came. Yes. And we've got a little bit of European culture there, the colonial towns. What do we see in that regard? Well, uh, Honduras was very much of a uh, of a backwater, and the reason it was is because it was an extremely rugged, mountainous country. So there's not a lot of cultivatable land there, hmm. uh, and there wasn't any. There was some mineral deposits, but not quite as much as as other places. So none of the colonists wanted to stay in Honduras. Okay, so you're not going to see the great colonial type architecture. No, but there are a number of very beautiful little towns, sort of lost out in the mountains. Uh, Gracias is one of them. Lovely name of a town. Gracias. Uh, yeah. Yes, it was very briefly the capital of Central America in the 1600s, and now it's just a quiet little cowboy town. Now, is there, any, is there anything charming about the capital, Tegucigalpa? It's okay. You know, eh, it doesn't blow you away. It's, uh, for me, I've been to a lot of the countries in Central America, and for me, it's my favorite capital city huh. uh, in Central America, but that's not necessarily saying that <laughs> much. <laughs> so you would say the real attraction of uh, Honduras is getting out of the capital city? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, out, of, out of the capital, I wouldn't bother going to San Pedro Sula either, mm-hmm. which is a big industrial town. Right. Yeah, it's just not, not that much there. You'll have to go through them both for transport. Sure, yeah. I'm talking with Chris Humphrey, who's the author of The Moon Handbook to Honduras, and we've got some travelers on the line. Let's go to Chicago, where Ralph is going to give us an insight into Honduras. What's on your mind? I wanted to ask Chris about the uh, the infrastructure, uh, the, mainly the tourist infrastructure in Honduras, and you know how easy or difficult is it to get around the country to these places that you've been talking about. Well, uh, it depends on what kind of level of tourism structure you're, uh, you're accustomed to, I would say. Uh, there, there's really very uh, extensive bus system all over the country. Uh, and in some of the main places like Copan, the ruins of Copan, and to the Bay Islands and all of that, you can get top-class transportation, no problem. Uh, if you want to get out into some of the more remote regions, uh, yeah, you might have to, you might have to bump along with uh, someone with a chicken on their lap next to you kind of thing. Um, but the main the main areas are all very well very well covered with top notch bus service. Is it the formal situation, Chris, where you wait at the bus uh, bus station and the, the bus leaves on a schedule, or do you just wave down uh, public transportation vehicles in the middle of nowhere and they stop for you and you hop on? Well, again, it depends on where you're going. I do a lot of the the latter. Mm-hmm. They call it halon in Honduras, where you basically just wave any pickup truck coming by. I've noticed but, in the poorer countries, there's an actual, ironically, it gets easier to travel in, in the absolutely. middle of nowhere because anybody rolling down the road knows that, hey, they got room in the in the back next to all the bags of beans or whatever you can hop in. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of the most uh, comfortable way to travel, actually, because you're in the open air, you're chatting with the local folks. But, uh, but I do want to make sure that it's clear that, yeah, in the main areas, the main towns, you can get regular bus service with schedules and all the rest. You buy tickets and Good. what hey, have you. Ralph, any other questions there? Yes, uh, you, you briefly mentioned uh, about the, uh, the American expatriate community there. Can you yeah. be a little bit more? Um... Sure. Um, there, there's a few places in particular where, uh, where a lot of expats are going. It's the main, uh, mainly the north coast beach towns uh, on the Caribbean coast is the north coast of Honduras. Uh, La Ceiba in particular, uh, the Bay Islands, of course. 
um, just it's just a fairly inexpensive place to uh, to buy property compared to the U.S. and and you can live very well and the weather's lovely. Uh, and Lago Yohoa, which is a lake in the center of the country, is also beginning to attract a, a lot of a lot of foreign expats. So you have a humble retirement. You could move down there and, and live pretty well, I would imagine. I'm thinking about it myself. Hey. I have to say. <laughs> All right, Ralph. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Thank Ralph. You. All right, we got Joe and Eugene. What's on your mind? Well, we just got back uh, from visiting the Bay Islands a couple of weeks ago, and it was very cool. Um, I was particularly impressed by the difference between Roatan and Utila. Definitely. Uh, We had gone there to visit a friend in Utila. (laughs) The average demographic of the travelers there is probably about 20 years old. Yeah, backpackers all the way through. And uh, scuba uh, divers. So we uh, tra- got into a thing of getting certified for about 200 bucks. You can take a course and get certified for scuba diving. And it was a very interesting crew of people we met down there. But you also managed to go to Roatan. Roatan, yeah. Roatan was very cool. Very Roatan, <laughs> I, I wrote to in the uh, in an email to uh, Rick's uh, website uh-huh. that uh, <laughs> if you rent a room in uh, Roatan, turn on the water before you actually hand over your money. <laughs> huh. Sometimes there's no water. Oh, dear. Yeah. That's a pretty remote spot. We're talking, I, just for, for listeners who don't know Honduras very well, I'm looking at the map here. you got the islands of La Bea. Is that right? Islands of Las Islas de la Bahia in Spanish, yeah. or the Bay Islands. In the, Islands. the Bay Islands. And, and these are tiny little islands off the north coast of Honduras. Uh, Okay, so you got out there by by uh, boat from the mainland. Is 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 you that normally correct? fly? I assume you flew. Is that correct? Yeah, I did, and it's, that's an adventure in itself because you come in on Taka, and then we tried to fly between Roatan and Utila. Yeah, you can't do that. Well, yeah, <laughs> one point we got out thinking, oh, we must be in Utila now. Nope, oh, we're no. in La Ceiba. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to go back and forth between the two. Hey, yeah. Joe, did you you spoke English or Spanish down here? Uh, English, uh, and that was one of the attractions because, as well, believe. Definitely. Used to be called British Honduras. Uh, it, it's a British-speaking um, what culture out there uh, in the north of Honduras. Yeah, in, on the islands, particularly on the islands. Yeah, not so much on the north there. on the islands. They all came from the Cayman Islands. Okay, uh, in the 1830s, huh. uh, and they've been there ever since. Yeah, I, we had a great experience where some little kid wanted us to uh, take his picture, mm-hmm. and so we took his picture and then said, "Well, we'll send it to you. How do we get it there? Well, come over to my grandmother's house." So we we a long time with this grandmother who was just this wonderful very dignified sweet lady who yep. apologized for her handwriting but uh, you know spoke beautiful english and was very gracious very charming woman ah, yep. fascinating hey joe what guidebook did you use for your travels um i think we used lonely planet but um we also just used mostly the internet sure really? and that helped hey joe thank you very much for your call certainly you, joe. okay we got Angie on the line in Nashville. What's your thoughts on Honduras? Um, well, I, I had an interesting comment for um, the gentleman who just spoke. Um, if, you, if there's no water in one hotel, there's probably not water in any of the other ones on that row, unless there's, they have their own water source, which is probably something you might want to find out. But if you, Would that be because and, uh, of a drought or what? Um, usually it's because sometimes the water tank has just gone out and <laughs> it hasn't refilled. Um, I'm, I'm speaking from, uh, I've been working in Honduras and working and living in Honduras for since about 88 or however long that is. And uh, I, I, I have a great love for the people there. And um, and, I, and I do think that tourism is a good thing. And, you know, I'm not against that at all. Um, most of what I've done down there is humanitarian efforts, although I have been to all the places that they've been talking about. And uh, I'm just, I'm glad for the tourism because it, it promotes economy. And uh, the economy is not good. Um, when the when we bring our money down and we exchange it, we get real excited about, you know, exchanging one dollar for eighteen limpida or whatever, and <laughs> that's good for us. But it's really horrible for them. If if you get more limpida for your dollar, that's really bad for the people. But um, I am glad for the tourism. Yeah, tourists going down will bring in a lot of uh, cash, and that's good for the local economy. Exactly, exactly. You can get a uh, a local tour guide. Um, it's it's probably better to ask at the airport, and they can usually point you towards some safe routes to do that instead of just you know asking some a random person off the side of the road. Which nine out of ten times would probably be a pretty good tour guide. <laughs> right, I bet. Yeah, as <laughs> we know the country better than anyone. Angie, if I may ask, what do you do in your uh, service work down there? I, I first went down with mission work with my college, uh-huh. and um, I've done some humanitarian efforts with 
uh, medical uh, facilities and, uh, you know, with my church, supported with them, and also down visiting on my own and just living there um, and working with different medical facilities. I'm not a medical person, but I I have offered myself as a translator down there. That must be rewarding work. It really is. I was just going to say, Angie, I'm I'm heading down to Central America for my third educational tour, and I go with uh-huh. Augsburg College, uh, the Center for oh, Global neat. Education. And I know there's uh, it's one of a number of outfits that take Americans down to Central America to study the roots of poverty and structural poverty and uh, yes. struggles between yes. peoples and so on. And <laughs> it's just the most rich and powerful educational travel experiences I've ever had in my life. So there's a lot of ways to travel in Central America on purpose, you know, to learn and to share and to come back to the United States and help our country um, be a, a positive force as Central America develops. I'm really glad you said that, and I'm glad they're doing that. Um, that's actually one issue I kind of wanted to, to, to hit, if you don't mind throwing this out. Please do. Um, <laughs> well, the, uh, it, it's very good to, you know, to open your you know, eyes to the world around you. Um, it, you know, your worldview changes significantly, your, your values and your behaviors um, that basically are an outcome of your worldview. And so when you see someone else's, it's very interesting to be able to, um, you know, when you see their behaviors and their values, to know where that actually comes from. So it's really neat that you're, that you're able to do that. Um, one thing that I think is very difficult for North Americans, um, and I say North Americans because <laughs> they're also Central and South Americans, and um, sometimes if you speak Spanish and you actually only say American, they're offended by that. <laughs> right. Um, but I think a lot of North Americans spend a lot of time booing and awing over the poverty instead of, you know, being a part of the um, the people, being a part of um, their lives and their relationships, and eating dinner with them and spending time with them. For example, I had a a, a group member ask me if they could if I could please take them to. Um, a house that had a dirt floor, because they really wanted a picture of a dirt floor. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> uh, as nice and, and wonderful as the Honduran people are, and as patient as they are, for someone to come in and say, let me take a picture of your poverty, right. it's like saying, um, it's, if I'm sitting on my front porch drinking a lemonade and this van full of people that I don't know just gets out and takes a picture of me, gets back in and goes off. It's, it's very similar. <laughs> it's very good advice. Also, I think when Americans go down to Central America, they can learn there is a lot of richness down there and a lot of affluence that has nothing to do with material well-being. And in exactly. so many ways, we're so incredibly rich materially, and we go down to Central America and we find people that are just as rich in ways that are non-material. And to me, that's inspirational. Yes, that's a very good way to look at it. And, and there are um, people that are very content where they are, mm-hmm. and there are also people who aren't and who really want to get to the mm-hmm. states and think that there's something that's going to change for them up here, and and that's that's discouraging as well because sometimes life isn't you know what right what it looks <laughs> they like might in have the expected movies. it to be. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Angie, very much for your comments. <laughs> no problem. Thank, thank you, you, Angie. So, Chris Humphrey, the author of the Moon Handbook to Honduras, this has been a fascinating look at a country that uh, can teach us a lot about uh, the economic realities on this planet, as well as natural wonders and history, and uh, most important, just the beauty of getting outside of our realm and, and meeting uh, meeting people that can uh, can give us a, a little insight into their joy of living. Chris, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you. Um, you got me thinking seriously about Honduras. I hope you go. All right. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to pack up and move to a completely different country? Steve Spencer recently did just that, settling in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. We'll check in with Steve to see what life's like for an American in Rio. Coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Come away with me in the night. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now, we're going to talk to an American, a New Yorker, who's um, settling into Brazil and about to marry into the culture. And we're going to talk about how an American can uh, maintain his American contacts and how an American can dive right into another culture. This is Steve Spencer talking to us from Rio de Janeiro. Steve, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, Steve, so now the deal is you've uh, basically a long-time New Yorker, and how long have you been living in uh, Rio now? I have um, a history in Rio de Janeiro. I lived here back in the 80s, and um, then when I returned to the States, went on about um, um, relatively normal Americans' life for about another 15 years, and during the time that I was in graduate school, 
I began to look at the radio environment in Brazil and particularly its public broadcasting environment. My, my background is in public broadcasting. Okay. And I noticed some similarities between the broadcast environment that they have down here in Brazil and what we had in the United States prior to the creation of national public radio and public television and began corresponding with uh, colleagues down here and one thing led to another and I decided to relocate back down to Rio 20 years later to work on potentially the creation of Brazilian public radio. Wow and now you've got this um, famously left-wing President Lula right? Uh, I, I suppose his, his roots are, are famously left-wing, as he is uh, certainly um, from the Workers' Party and uh, has been a noted uh, opposition figure for many years, going back to the years of the military dictatorship. Um, but I, I think many would, would say that if you look at the policies of, the, um, of, the, uh, of Lula's government at the moment, many say that they, they don't see many significant differences between uh, what uh, his policies are, particularly the uh, financial policies and foreign policies, than those that were carried on by his uh, predecessor, uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso. Okay. Now, what, from a public radio point of view, do you have any sense of what his thoughts are on government funding uh, public like uh, radio or TV? You know, I think that's a complicated matter because on the one hand, there is no tradition here for what we understand in the States as, as public broadcasting um, because, frankly, ours is a very unique system that's um, lived with this public-private partnership, as we call it, between limited government financing, uh, public membership dollars, and uh, underwriting from local businesses. Uh, the rest of the world understands uh, public broadcasting as something that is government-financed, and sometimes those services can be completely independent of the government or almost completely, and uh, stellar services like the BBC or the CBC in Canada uh, right down to government services that are, frankly, very little bit, bit more than government propaganda. I guess that would be a, a concern if the government's paying for it. Maybe the government's going to use it for its interests rather than just promoting uh, non-commercial broadcasting. Yes, and, and in this regard, there, there certainly is, is, really is no non-commercial broadcasting here in Brazil, uh, again, as we understand it. In fact, what was interesting was when I, when I did my little research study uh, back in 2000, um, Several years later, a, a gentleman who, who heads one of the educational radio services, um, the, it's called Hajo Meki, here in Rio de Janeiro, he wrote an internal uh, email uh, to his colleagues uh, at many of these stations. We were curiously saying almost essentially the same things which was that these stations share something in common and really ought to be sitting down at the same table together and determining what it is they can do together, how they can do it, and, and, and perhaps chart a path. And about, I'd say, three or four months after he wrote that note, a new organization called the Brazilian Public Radio Association was formed. And in fact, uh, next, next week, I will be in Sao Paulo addressing the um, uh, Brazilian Public Radio Association at its uh, next large meeting. All right. Well, good luck on that endeavor. Let's talk just about being an American expat in a country like Brazil. Are there a lot of Americans um, that you stay in touch with? Is there a community? And, and how, do you, how do you stay in touch in a, in a huge world like Brazil? Well, um, there was an era when uh, there was a much larger American community uh, in Rio de Janeiro, partly because um, several decades ago, of course, this was the, the capital of the nation, and then it moved to uh, Brasilia. But also there have been shifts within the, uh, the commercial sectors. And so a lot of foreign business, a lot of American businesses over the, the last uh, few decades have um, mostly moved their way towards Sao Paulo and other cities. So most Americans that you meet here who have been here for a long time or have experience traveling back and forth will tell you that uh, the Rio de Janeiro community of Americans is certainly smaller than it, than it once had been. Nevertheless, uh, there certainly is a community, and Rio de Janeiro has, as many foreign cities have, uh, American societies. Uh, I would dare say that if you went on the Internet these days and looked for the American Society of Tokyo or Moscow or mm -hmm. Lord knows uh, what other cities, you'd probably find some, some association uh, that uh, serves the interests of the community of expatriates who live in those cities. And we certainly have one here in Rio de Janeiro. Now, 
a lot of Americans these days, people from any group, any nationality, can move around the world and not even assimilate if they choose not to because of high-tech ways of communicating and staying in touch with uh, folks back home and, um, you know, fellow citizens in that country away from home. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that works? I sure can, uh, because um, it, it was the uh, the curiosity of the difference between uh, when I lived here 20 years ago and now. In the 1980s, you know, it, it seems like you're talking about another century. Well, well we are talking about another century. Um there was no internet. Uh, there was no satellite television or cable television or that sort of thing down here. Uh, there weren't even ATM machines. So when I lived down here in the, in the, in the 80s, if you wanted to keep in touch with uh, your culture, with America, well, I suppose you could pick up a um, pricey copy of the International Herald Tribune or uh, the New York Times. Uh, you could go to the movies, certainly, uh, because well, you could see those in English. Or once a week, there was a now uh, a defunct television network that every week on a Friday night would show an English-language film in English with Portuguese subtitles. And that was it. Boy, we've other come than, a long way since then. Other than meeting other Americans on the street and, you know, hobnobbing, uh, that, was, that was your connection to your culture. Whereas today... I'm in contact with America 24/7. There, there is, there's not, there's hardly a moment when I don't feel like I'm in contact with America. Just prior to to, to chatting with you here today on on the telephone, I had uh, an American station, Air America, streaming on my my computer, and I was listening to that at my my desktop. I can go home and I can watch satellite television and see practically any television series and many different news channels and and again with the internet in general just just accessing any newspaper or other source that I want yesterday I was watching some hearings some congressional hearings on C-SPAN so you could stay tuned into your favorite sports team effortlessly these I, days I can I can <laughs> get just about anything I want I mean I, you said sports team I'm I'm a, I'm a dyed in the wool Mets fan right and I was uh, I, I I can get ESPN down here, uh, one of the ESPN Brazil channels, where I can toggle back and forth between listening to the play-by-play in you know, the regular play-by-play you would hear in the states in English, or I can get the play-by-play in Portuguese. And there's there's I'm tickled no end by watching a Mets game being called uh, in, in Portuguese. In Portuguese, I think, it's, I think it's a hoot. That's just radical. The changes, so you can really um, move away with and and take away a lot of the stress and the 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 culture shock of having to abandon your culture, and you can have have it both ways, really. You know, it is like having it both ways, um, because I, I, I didn't just come to Brazil as a lark uh, as the years have gone on from my first experience. I just have an affinity for the culture. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly fond of, uh, you may know that uh, natives of Rio de Janeiro are, are called cariocas, mm-hmm. and I have a significant fondness for the carioca culture. Well, you're in love with one, aren't you? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> You're planning um, a wedding now. Uh, as 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 God's plans would have it, uh, I, I certainly didn't plan for it. It was just one of those things, and uh, I just met a carioca um, uh, last uh, last July, last August, and um, from there things just, just just skyrocketed. And I'm very pleased to say we're we're planning on being married soon. Um, but yes, yes, I am. And but but in general, I just I just adore the culture. So I can do my Brazilian thing and do my carioca thing and and revel in in the, being a part of this foreign culture. Absorbing the language has been a, a big challenge for me. Uh, I love the Portuguese language, but um, my it's, it's it's always a struggle. But as they say, gia gia, it's getting better and better. <laughs> gia, gia. But um, but I'm never I'm I'm never more than a click away from America. Well, that's great. I'm talking with Steve Spencer. He's a New Yorker, a Mets fan who is uh, moving into Rio de Janeiro. He's planning a wedding. And hey, Steve, talk to me about uh, two things: the changing environment for visas and all the kind of red tape between countries as you um, proceed with your wedding plans and so on, and also any fallout uh, for being an American uh, overseas with our current foreign policy and so on. Yeah, I mean it's 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 difficult to talk about this because um without getting into my own personal politics or or, or feelings um certainly there is no direct animus uh that I I can see that's being directed at Americans but um American foreign policy as certainly is is not is not popular among Brazilians in general and uh from what I can gather in the press here as well it just isn't 
and and that's multi-layered. It's it, it's it's not just about uh, the situation in Iraq. It's it's because down here in Latin America, there's significant talk about the um, uh, the proposed free trade zone of the Americas. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's the one significant stance that Lula has taken that that uh, that has staked a claim here, where he's made it clear he is not interested in this arrangement at this particular point in time. He he has said quite quite clearly that he's much more interested in the Latin American group of trading nations called Mercosur, hmm. uh, solidifying their work down here before he's interested in ha- seeing that expanded beyond um, the, the borders of Latin America. But Steve, what's what the fallout for you on the street as just an individual American? I mean, people know you're an American. Is it a, is it a problem or do they just accept no, you as an individual? No. There's, there's no problem. I mean, I mean, I, I, I have said, and I certainly wouldn't be the only one to say that, that Brazilians are among the most charming and friendly and warm and welcoming people you will ever want to meet in your life. I mean, you, you can you can sit in the living room and have a have a discussion about national politics here in Brazil, international politics, American politics, or anything else for that matter, and people will voice their opinions uh, quite uh, openly, etc. But it's it, it, I've never, ever felt, not, not a single time, that there was anything ever directed at me individually as, as an abstract American, if you right. please, you know, beyond being me. So you can respectfully differ in your politics. Uh, you certainly, and mm-hmm. and and in many ways, I would say that you will find um, perhaps even more diversity of the kinds of opinions that you'll encounter um, here than maybe what you see in the states these days, hmm. which certainly to many of us seems increasingly polarized. Yeah. Now, just from a practical point of view, you've been going back and forth, and as we know, you're dealing with this upcoming wedding and so on. Any changes in the visas and the just the the, the red tape involved in in commuting between countries? I think. There is more red tape. I mean, I can only speak personally, and I've only heard some stories. Um, on the one hand, there's the unavoidable uh, aftermath of 9-11. Uh, there just are changes that have been made with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, there have been changes in in the, the processing. Um, I know that, for example, just a few months ago, uh, whereas for Brazilian citizens who wish to just obtain general visas to visit the United States just as tourists, uh, there was a system where you just stood online and you went in and you filled out your forms and did what you did. And you know, I, I don't know all the details, but I know that several months ago the, the consulates announced that they were implementing a new system where if you want to go and obtain a visa, you have to first call a phone number or go online and you apply for an appointment. You can't just walk into the consulate anymore as a Brazilian citizen. Hmm. And you have to pay a fee just to be able to have an interview for accessing a visa. And then, of course, there's another fee to pay on top of that just to get the visa itself. And I only mention that because between our nations, there's there's these international treaties of reciprocity, which basically means that whatever one government uh, implements on another's citizens, the other can reciprocate. So, uh, for example, when I have to pay for the visa that I currently have, I, I had to pay a $100 fee. The Brazilian government is quick to remind American citizens that the only reason we are charging your citizens this particular fee is because your government charges our citizens this fee. Uh, other governments, um, they, they say, no, we have an open policy. We don't, you know, we're happy to have you come to and visit our country. You can visit, and they don't, they don't charge these fees. So there is increased levels, I think, of, of, uh, of bureaucracy, uh, partly, again, as a necessary um, uh, precaution, I suppose, to, to, uh, to keep the borders secure and, and uh, perhaps process things better. But on the other hand, you do hear people muttering and complaining a bit about the, the, the increased red tape and bureaucracy, and is this really necessary? I've got friends in the Czech Republic, musicians, that had to pay that fee, that $100 fee, just for an appointment at the embassy, and they had their appointment. They didn't pass whatever test, and they they just lost their money, and they didn't get a chance to even apply for a visa. So, Well, I can tell you personally, um, and, and uh, we did clear this up, but it, it was not... It was actually uh, a little shocking and not pleasant. Uh, when my fiancé went to the uh, consulate, I had gone to the consulate myself, and I had sought advice. Uh, and I had asked, well, we're planning to go within a month's time. Um, should, should I apply for what's called the fiancé visa, which means I can apply on her behalf to travel with me as my fiancé? They have a special category. I think it's called K-1. 
Right. And uh, I was advised, well, you know, you don't really need to do that. If she's just going with you and you're just, she's just going as a tourist anyway, she's going to meet my family because my, my parents are, uh, are in their 80s and they, they don't travel. Uh, so uh, you don't need to do that. Just have her come in and apply for a tourist visa. And so I went home and I said, well, hon, that's what they said. Go apply for a tourist visa. So we did what we had to do to get her an appointment. And I said, when you go in, Obviously, you tell them the truth. You tell them you're traveling with me. I'm, I'm your fiancé, and I'm an American. My parents are in their 80s, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and that's the way it is. And, um, and the, the consular official said, oh, no, 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 we couldn't possibly approve you to travel to the States because if you go with your fiancé, you could marry in the United States, and then you'll just stay there. Mm. Now, we thought, well, and what if we did? What would be the problem with that? Isn't that our, our business? Um, but it was a little shocking that on that first pass interview, she got rejected, and then we had to go through a bit of a process to say, this seems a little funky here. Can't she just travel with me to do exactly what we told the truth about? Yeah. Well, well there it is. There's a, it's a little funky after 9-11. Yeah, it certainly is. Steve Spencer, thank you very much for sharing your experience in Brazil with us, and best wishes. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Bye. Bye-bye. Vamos fugir Oh, deste lugar, baby Vamos fugir Tô cansado de esperar Que você me carregue Vamos fugir Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Goddard, Sonia Brosette, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from John Weist. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.